Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. A little bit of insider podcasting uh, information. Whenever I fire up the uh, podcast studio and I test the audio volume levels, you know, just want to make sure everything sounds good. I do little jingles, right? I, I'll sing little commercial songs into the microphone. Um, because what else are you supposed to do? Testing, testing, you know? That's not very creative. So today it was, um, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm loving it. Little, uh, little McDonald's commercial, guys. Testing the audio with the McDonald's commercial. Um, so, you know, that's what you don't get to hear. Um, you might like it though. Maybe I should, maybe I'll include that from now on. All right. Either here nor there. Today we're getting together to, uh, close up an episode I started with last week called the Olympian gods. Uh, we're going to round it off with the Olympian goddesses. So something I wanted to do, um, just to get the complete picture. But in case there are any ladies in the audience, this one's for you. So we've been looking at um, a bunch of pupils of Carl Jung, including Ed Edinger. Wrote a book called The Eternal Drama. I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm probably halfway or so into it, and it's just terrific. I mean, it's not difficult to read. Um, communicates sort of complicated um, psychological ideas, you know, from Carl Jung in a really easy to understand way. Uh, explaining the Greek gods the way that he does. It's just really good, man. I cannot say enough about it. Like I've said it before. It does something like what Jordan Peterson did for me with the biblical stories, where he kind of rejuvenated them and made them feel applicable and helped me to understand, you know, how maybe ancient people thought about those ideas. And Edinger's doing exactly the same thing with the classical gods uh, of ancient Greece. And I just really can't say enough about it. It's really good. It reminds me of um, Neumann. We're reading the other uh, pupil of Jung where everything that I read, I'm tempted to highlight. It's like, it's all important. It's all good. It's all gold, as far as I can tell. But Neumann is seemingly a little bit more academic than Edinger. He's a little bit more difficult to read. You might say he's deeper for that reason, but uh, I don't know that you're missing much from Edinger. It's just just fantastic. So, uh, without further ado, um, I will mention that the uh, we're having some weather today. It's a little bit windy. It's a lot of bit windy, actually, and um, the electricity keeps flashing in here. The lights keep dimming, so if uh, the podcast pauses uh, and picks back up in an awkward way, probably lost power. All right, guys, Young's Greatest Pupils. We're going to call this one 
goddesses of Olympus and feminine personality. So let's just start by saying, who the hell do you think you are, Chris? You're going to get on this podcast and talk about feminine personality. Are you are you a man? Yes. So do you why should you have a voice here? Well, uh, I mean, I I have uh, friends and family members that are women. I, I live with them every day. I uh, interact with them for my entire life. I have as much experience of women as you could possibly have, and not being a woman. And I think I think I can, I think I can say a thing or two about it. So, with all respect, um, I want to talk about to open this up. Something that Edinger is not going to talk about. He's going to gloss over a little bit. Um, it's the, it's the figure that rests at the very beginning of religious tradition, as far as we know. The evidence we have of human spirituality goes back a long ways. There's evidence of it in cave paintings that go back 30,000 years, or even 50,000 years in some cases in, in Australia. Um, we've got all kinds of statue, statues, statuettes, Venus figurines from uh, the Neolithic, you know, the, uh, the Stone Age, and they represent what most scholars agree is something like a, a great mother, the great mother goddess, maybe the first divinity ever thought up by human beings. And you can just imagine a symbol of the generative act of creation, so the creation of the cosmos, the creation of, of life itself, that those things are closely connected to femininity, they're closely connected to human women and female animals that ancient ancient human beings saw giving birth, you know? That's that's what we saw. It's a pretty important characteristic of a woman, uh, maybe the most important characteristic of humanity or life in general, the ability to procreate. And uh, that idea was abstracted and turned into um, a religious idea, the great mother. And then at some point in history, we see the great mother and the great father arising as some sort of a pair. So you have a, a masculine and a feminine version, and it's still considered to be one God. And this goes back to, you know, the ancient, the most ancient myths that we have to rely on. And the ones that go back to ancient Samaria talk about the Ouroboros, which was, you know, this chaotic thing in the beginning from which all of creation emerged. The birth of all the gods and the cosmos came from this generative union of opposites. And it was thought of as feminine. It was a goddess, a great goddess. And at some point in the mythological story, the great goddess gets separated from herself. And part of herself becomes the great father. And the, and the part that remains becomes the great mother. And together, those things are thought of as this single god that was there in the beginning. This single principle that symbolically we call the Ouroboros. The generative union of opposites. And the reason I bring this up is because all the goddesses that we're going to talk about today, they they stem from this original idea, this great mother goddess, you know, Mother Earth, um, all these sorts of ideas, uh, these ancient pagan ideas. They come back all the way, they roll back up into this primordial idea of a great mother. And in the myth, uh, again, in the mythological story, there's a separation that happens, and the Bible does a good job of describing it. Um, you know, the heavens are separated from the earth, the waters are separated from the land, the light is separated from the darkness, that sort of thing. And this is what you see in the beginning. 
The Ouroboros separates itself from itself and becomes two things, a masculine and a feminine principle. And taken together, the masculine and the feminine principle are whatever it is that God is. Hard to, hard to put words to that. Um, and what happens, though, is there's like this cascading effect when the original God, the Ouroboros, separates itself from itself. Everything that is created from that is also separated from itself. And you have this fractal cascade that happens where things that were one were split into two and things that were two are split into four and four are split into eight. And all of this separation happens forever. It doesn't stop. And psychologically, when folks like Young get involved, they talk about that as, well, the, the word that Jordan Peterson uses is bivalent. And what that means is that these symbols that get separated um, kind of in, in this duality, this, they get separated into two. It's almost like there's a good side and a bad side, for lack of a better way of describing it. They get bivalent. They get split into two, and they have two very different types of personalities. So the great mother becomes a beneficent, good mother goddess, and also a ta terrible, devouring mother goddess. And the great father, and we saw this in the episode when um, we talked about the Olympian gods, the great father also breaks down like that. So he has a beneficent, good version. He's like the, you know, the protective father figure. And then you have this other one, this sort of uh, violent, destroying type of a um, tyrant king character. And so all, this, this is what happens, right? There's a there's an original unity that gets separated and split out, and uh, that just cascade just continues. And you see that wrapped up in these stories, and you're going to see it in the goddesses themselves. And try to imagine, as we're going through this, at every single one of these goddesses, and every single one of the personality types that you can associate with these goddesses, they are really one. They really roll up into one thing, the great mother where they all came from. And what that means for you as a woman, if you're a woman listening, is that all of these personalities exist within you to some degree. It's not going to be true of your entire personality, probably at any time. But these are at least potentialities that are in your psyche. And there are probably times in your life when you, when you will remember having been like this, like this particular personality. Maybe you grew out of it. Maybe you kept certain pieces of it and discarded other pieces of it, and you incorporated that into your personality going forward. Uh, maybe you went back and forth between some of these personalities at different times in your life for different reasons. But it's important to understand that all these goddesses that we're talking about, they don't represent what would be your permanent personality. There really isn't such a thing. These are all possibilities of personality that might be Called, called out of you, called forth out of you based upon circumstances. You know, these are potentials that are there. Uh, that's why Jung calls them archetypal forces. These are patterns that already exist in your psyche, and they can be turned on, they can be activated, and when they're needed. So these are potentialities that can be activated when they're needed. And you'll see that. Try to think about that in your own life when we're talking about these stories. Moments when things changed and you needed to have it different personality and you brought forth from yourself something you didn't expect a strength you didn't expect you know something like that and before I jump into the uh, book here I want to open with a 
quote from the book, but it's kind of it's in this it's in this chapter, but it's kind of kind of deep in the chapter and a little bit misplaced. There wasn't a great place for me to put it, but I I didn't want to skip it. I think it's great, so I want to open with it. And this is talking about well, like we started talking about the Olympian gods. Today we're going to talk about the Olympian goddesses. Um, because we're talking about masculine and feminine, and my audience is both men and women, this is um, contentious and interesting. And you can probably see um, the masculine in y- yourself. If you're if you're a woman, you can. If you're a man, you probably have the feminine to a certain degree in yourself, and you might recognize some of these goddesses' personalities in yourself. If you're a man, or or vice versa with the gods. If you're a woman, so I don't. I just want to be open minded about this and talk about this openly, and um, and I hope you'll do the same. Um, All right, so let me just open up with this. The gods and goddesses are often in opposition. As long as the archetypal powers themselves are divided, the ego is cast in a tragic role, being split by the conflict. As long as there is a multiplicity of principles that has not achieved a decisive unity, life is essentially tragic. It is only with the unification symbolized by by monotheism and psychologically represented by the self that there is a chance to overcome this essential tragedy. All right, so this is really important. And it's not super clear or super easy to understand upon first reading. So I'll tell you what I think this means. The forces of the gods and gods are in opposition. So let me just start there. The gods in general represent... Uh, the masculine, masculine principle, masculine energy, masculine forces that every human being has. The goddesses represent the unconscious, the unconscious forces that act within everyone. And just like any human being, we know that we exist partly consciously and partly unconsciously. And those things are kind of like opposites, like we started talking about with the Ouroboros in the beginning, the generative union of opposites the union of consciousness and unconsciousness, or the union of masculine and feminine. So it gives us a way of trying to conceptualize this. Those things are in opposition. But remember, those things are archetypal forces that exist in our psyche, every single one of us. So what we have in our mind are forces that are in opposition to each other. We have masculine forces, we have feminine forces, um, they are all bivalent, remember. So there are some forces that are, are already some sort of a unity, and still they're at odds with each other. And we're going to see that in a little bit, but imagine you have an aggressive force and a compassionate force, and they're both active, you know, at various times, maybe competing with each other, and you have to decide, you know, which direction to go, which which force is going to be dominant over the others, and so forth. Um, so... So it's important to understand that there are fundamental contradictions and oppositions in the forces, the motivational forces that are within us. So we have this conflict, this internal conflict. That's what Edinger calls the eternal drama, which is what the book is called. And what he says here is that, that we are in a tragic role because we're kind of caught in the middle. And we're the person that exists that gets to manifest or embody these forces that are in our psyche. They take over us in a manner of speaking, and they have a reality that way. And if they're fighting with each other, I kind of get this image of like a demon-possessed person. 
and you've got these two spirits that are jumping in and out of, in and out of their body, trying to, you know, take charge for themselves and competing with one another for it. And there's something that's a, you know, in a silly example, but it's something like that. And he says, as long as there, there is a multiplicity of principles that has not achieved a divisive, a decisive unity, that life is essentially tragic. And what he means by that is, if you never understand that these forces exist within you, and that, and that you are in control, in charge, that you are God over the rest of the spirits within you, that you're just going to be the puppet for those various motivational forces back and forth like a yo-yo as long as you live. You know, one force um, takes you in, you know, a particular direction, then you get captured by another motivation or, or, you know, influence, and it pulls you in another. And you aren't driving the car. You know, you're not master of your story. Um, you're just a, you're an extra, you know. Like the, the psychological forces within you are, are you know, taking the lead. And you're the best supporting actor or actress. So this is an important thing to understand. And then more importantly, he says that it's only with the unification symbolized by monotheism and psychologically by the self. So what, is, what does he mean by that? Okay, so monotheism is pretty you know, straightforward. It's the idea that there's only one God. So if you have all of these spirits within you, or if you believe, that, like the ancient Greeks did, that the world was occupied, uh, populated by various supernatural forces. Um, that's all very much beyond you as a mortal. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. And all these forces are pulling you this way and that way, and you have no, you're just at the whim of the of the divine forces. It's just, a, it's a, you can see how you can't take charge of that until you change your perspective. And monotheism does that by saying, look, I'm not going to diminish that there are these spiritual forces in the world. You know, even monotheist religions like Christianity talk about angels and demons and so forth. We're not going to diminish that. There are psychic forces and transpersonal forces in the world that are mysterious and powerful. But there's one thing that dominates them all at the top of the hierarchy. There is one spirit that is something like the great spirit, you know, the one ring that rules them all. And, and that creates this hierarchy, it creates this structure that organizes and tames the forces within you, because you have this dominated force, this high God, this supreme God, that makes all the other spirits lesser, that makes all the other spirits dependent on it, right? And we do the same thing psychologically, Jung says, with the idea of the self. It's like the self is the structure under which all these archetypal forces find themselves. And the moment you realize that you are that self, and these motivational forces that are pushing and pulling you from the inside, they really belong to you. They're tools for you. You know, they're resources for you. As soon as you realize that, then you become God, right? The self becomes God at the top of the hierarchy. And all the other, you know, psychological forces inside you, they become subdued they become tamed they become tools for you to use and and not forces that turn you into a puppet something like that and he says that that is how you overcome the essential essential tragedy of life hmm. to become the self to become the god within that dominates that um uh rules over all of these other forces to become 
you know, the high God, to become, you know, master of those things. So let's talk about those forces. Let's talk about those personalities. Let's talk about the Olympian goddesses. So this is the first section here. Edinger begins, First among the female deities on Olympus was Hera, queen of heaven, the wife and equal of Zeus. She was the embodiment of the feminine aspect of the self, of wifehood, motherhood, and the power of women. All right, so I want to point out here this thing where, that he says about Hera being the queen of heaven because that's a title that was historically given to that um, great mother goddess that we talked about. Um, queen of heaven is something that we see even even in the Sumerian, uh, I think it's maybe Ishtar who's called the queen of heaven. There's all sorts of, of these primordial ancient goddesses that have this title queen of heaven. But more importantly, the queen of heaven is equal to Zeus, is equal to the king of heaven. And that goes back to this, you know, a time before patriarchal or even matriarchal um, social organization, a prehistoric Stone Age time when people recognized that the Ouroboros, the great, the great mother and great father, were one thing equally powerful, equally necessary. And so Hera represents the equal and, con- and, and counter to Zeus. And even in ancient Greece, even in a patriarchal society, Hera was the equal of Zeus. All right, Edinger says, As much power and effectiveness adhere to the feminine principle as to the masculine, Zeus has to take Hera into account. Beyond her fury at Zeus's persistent affairs, Hera would also nurse resentment towards certain human heroes, for instance, Heracles and Aeneas, Yet her harassing and plaguing had the effect of goading these heroes on to great accomplishment. All right, so again, we have a statement talking about the equality of Zeus and Hera when, he, when Edinger says that the feminine principle and the masculine principle have the same power and effectiveness in the Greek religious perspective. That Zeus can't do anything. You know, even the king of the gods can't do anything on his own. He has to take his wife into account just like any good husband should do with, with their wife, right? And Zeus, of course, is a notorious philanderer. He's always, uh, he's always out having extramarital affairs with goddesses and mortal women. And um, that obviously Hera is no fan of that. And so Edinger mentions that, but he also mentions how Hera also has resentment towards certain human heroes, Heracles and Aeneas. But what's interesting about this is that Hera's harassing of the heroes, putting obstacles in the ways of these heroes, these mortal heroes like Heracles and Aeneas or demigods, that when she does that, that she's actually facilitating these heroes to rise to the challenge, right? She's making the heroes better heroes. And she does that by being a pain in the ass to them. And this isn't going to be this isn't going to be a particularly sensitive statement, but I have to say, you know, I grew up um, a long time with my great-grandfather and great-grandmother alive. You know, they were very, very old-school, old-fashioned people, and I, I knew them for a long time. Um, so maybe I feel more comfortable saying something like this than I should, but here we go. This is the way I see it, what this is trying to say. As much as men complain about the so-called nagging that they receive from their spouses— 
This function of forcing men to become ever more conscious of themselves, their flaws and their shortcomings, is a powerful motivational force. And there's, a, there's a phrase in the Bible, I'm probably going to butcher it because it's just from memory. It says something like this. It says that it's better to eat alone in peace, to eat a, a meager meal alone in peace, than it is to eat a feast with a nagging woman. And that may, that's it's very ancient shit, you know, it's, pro, it's probably not, not said the most sensitive way, but you understand what the sentiment is, that a woman has the ability to get under a man's skin to make them aware of the things that they're trying to be blissfully unaware of. Sometimes that's their responsibilities or the work they have to do. I don't want to think about that right now. Honey, you got to take out the garbage, that kind of thing. Uh, but also things to do with our personality. You know, it's like, you know, you never listen. You know, your wife tells you, you never listen. Why don't you listen? Um, whatever it might be, whatever flaws it is that have to be pointed out, men aren't going to realize those things often on their own. What they need is somebody to make them conscious of it. And it, we don't like that. We fucking hate that. Uh, especially when it, when it seems like criticism, and usually it does. But here's the thing. It's necessary criticism a lot of the time. There, it's legitimate a lot of the time. Women are making us aware of our actual flaws and shortcomings. So we must be a better man in order to avoid the nagging, right? We have to be a better man. We have to do a better job. And that way we won't have to deal with the nagging. So, so what a woman is doing is making a man conscious of themselves in ways they would rather not be, right? We're, we're pushing those things into our unconscious, pretending they don't exist, and women, of course, represent that feminine unconscious principle. And they're right there to tell us, oh no, the things you're hiding in your unconscious, they're obvious to me. I'm going to show them to you. That kind of thing. And it is necessary in the maturation process. And it's a vital, vital role of women. It's like so that a man can become worthy of her. Something like that. And she's the only one that's going to tell you what it is that's needed to be worthy of her. This is also related to the biblical story of the Garden of Eden. You know, Eve is the one that brought consciousness to man, right? Knowledge of good and evil, that's consciousness. Eve offered Adam the apple, he ate it, or the fruit, whatever it is. He eats it, he becomes aware of what he, was no, what he wasn't aware of before. He becomes aware of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's self-consciousness. It's the same story here. So there's a connection between Hera and Eve, and I find that to be interesting. All right, Edinger says, The picture of marital quarreling between Zeus and Hera depicts symbolically the conflict between the masculine and feminine principles. It shows clearly that the masculine principle is not omnipotent. It can be effectively challenged by its opposite. So this is this really boils down to the stories that are told about Zeus and Hera. You know, when Zeus goes around cheating on her, Hera goes around getting vengeance, you know? And what it what these stories are supposed to tell you is that even the king of the gods is not all powerful. You know, his power is is checked by some by his other half, right? By this other part of him, this feminine principle. And that's his wife Hera. And again, I think Zeus and Hera together represent that masculine and feminine principle. 
and they are something like a whole. You know, the stories talk about them as though they're separate individuals. But if we go back to, if we remember the Ouroboros, we know that the masculine and feminine are one thing. Zeus and Hera are the great father and the great mother. That's one thing, the Ouroboros, that symbolic thing that we call God. All right, he goes on, he says, As a type, the Hera woman has a regal, born-to-command quality. She can be a generous patroness, and she always assumes the right to be in charge. To encounter the Hera principle internally means to make contact with her inner feminine as an authority to be served. In a man's psychology, Hera can be can represent the authoritarian aspect of the mother complex against which the masculine ego must establish itself. All right, so let's tear this apart a little bit so it makes some sense. So Hera as a personality type. So try to think about people in your life or you yourself or moments in your life when you think this would describe you. She has a regal, born-to-command quality. So I think that is like the elder woman, the, the woman that's respected in the community, the matriarch, something like that. Something worth saying here is probably something like this. I don't know about you, but in my family, there's still a lot of an, kind of an old school quality to the family dynamic. The men are definitely considered to be in charge, in a, in a sense, at least on the surface. You know, uh, dad's the boss and, uh, you know, the discipline, uh, the guy that does the discipline and, and lays down the law. And uh, if there's ever um, something mom can't handle, she passes it to dad and dad, you know, uh, drops the uh, drops the curtain. Uh, so that's kind of how things how things are in, in my family. As an adult, though, I come to realize how superficial that is. I come to realize how how dad has always been a kind of a tool that's used by mom, right? Mom's really behind the scenes. She's the boss. She's in charge. Her happiness is what is what matters most. Her desires are what matter most. And so she's kind of like the boss behind the scenes. And I think that is something like the Hera personality, you know, born to command. Well, she's commanding even, even the masculine principle, you know? Something like that. That's the way I see it. All right, so he says, to encounter the Hera principle internally means to make contact with the inner feminine as an authority to be served. In a man, the feminine is there, but it's largely unconscious. It's what Jung calls the anima. It's this feminine part of ourselves that we pretend doesn't exist and we try not to identify it, even though we really should. And we'll be more complete as people if we can integrate that, you know, part of our personality into ourselves. And he says that Hera can represent the authoritarian aspect of the mother complex against which the masculine ego must establish itself. So what in the Sam Hell does he mean by that? This goes, this goes back to something we talked about a few times, but we did talk about it on the Olympian God episode. And it's the, it's the, symbolic, it's the symbolic way of understanding how consciousness arises. You know, where, where does it come from? Where, you know, symbolically, mythologically, it comes from the Ouroboros. Um, the masculine and the feminine are there in the Ouroboros. And the masculine represents consciousness. And the, and the 
feminine represents unconsciousness. So you have this originally, this Ouroboros is this great goddess figure. And from her, from this unconscious thing, emerges consciousness. And the question is, how does that happen? How do you get consciousness from unconsciousness? And it's a mystery and it's a paradox. And there's this... There's this great sort of symbolic way of understanding consciousness emerging from unconsciousness. When you think about the experience of a zygote and a fetus in a woman's body as it's developing, you know, there's a time in which you can imagine that that zygote or that fetus um, doesn't yet have a consciousness of its own. You know, it's sort of in process. And at that point, the mother has a consciousness, but this developing child doesn't really have one of its own. But it does blend with the mother somehow. It does blend with the mother's consciousness somehow, and it's hard to understand way. And at some point, it pulls itself free from this unconscious uh, background to become a consciousness all of its own. And it's a mystery how that happens. But it does happen. You've got this, this unconscious creature that's developing. Cells are dividing, and it's becoming more complicated. And as somehow, at some point, this thing has a consciousness of all of its own, its own personality, its own sense of self, um, that sort of thing. And this, you know, that's the mother complex. That's the devouring mother. That the conscious, that the burgeoning, you know, consciousness has to separate itself from. And it's not an easy thing to do. And you can imagine if you were a, if you were a zygote, you know, in the comfort and warmth of your mother's womb, and you had no personality of your own, you had no, nothing being asked of you, you had no desires of your own, everything that you need is been, being satisfied by your situation, by your circumstances, and, you know, you don't have to do anything, and you don't have to feel anything, and you don't have to think about anything, you don't have to worry about anything, there's something comforting and peaceful and blissful about that kind of idea, about that kind of unconsciousness. So you can imagine that there might be an appeal to that. I, I just think about this morning, I was very, very, very tired. And I woke up and it was just like, all I had to do was close my eyes and I was just immediately back to sleep. You know, it was like the the, the force of peace and, um, you know, the, being so exhausted. It, it's the, Everything was pulling me towards going back to sleep. And it was hard for me to say, look, man, you got responsibilities. I know, I know this feels good. I know you want to, but you got to get up. It's pulling yourself forcing yourself to pull yourself away from the from the pleasure and the comfort that's something like the process of, of going from this unconscious state to the conscious state and i think that's a good analogy because when you're sleeping you're unconscious you know and when you wake you, you're conscious and when you open your eyes you have consciousness but you have the weight of the world that comes with it and it's it's not an easy thing to take on that burden every day so it's something like that what's trying to be described So I think Hera represents the unconscious matrix, you know, this the womb, you know, of potentiality, if I, if I want to be poetic about it, from which consciousness can arise. So that that is the great mother. And that brings me to the next section, which I want to call Hestia. All right, Hestia, Edinger says, is the goddess of the sacred hearth. Uh, it's a little bit of an uh, old-fashioned word. Anybody know what a hearth is? 
it's just a fireplace, you guys. It's just a fireplace. So Hestia is the goddess of the sacred hearth. She personified the center of the family and of gatherings of family and clan. The hearth was also a sacrificial altar. All right, so why is this important? The hearth, the fireplace, you know, you can imagine if you go back to the Stone Age, um, people are, all, are gathering around the campfire. If you've ever been hunting, if you've ever been camping, you know what that's like. Um, people around the campfire uh, joining together for warmth, for conversation, um, for food, you know, for comfort, uh, for protection and safety, all that sort of thing. So people gather around fire. And the fire has always been a symbol for home and security and safety and stories and all that sort of thing because that's what happens around the fire. You know, eating and speaking and communing and being a family. We, we, in modern day, uh, we think about that maybe as sitting around the dinner table together, but sitting around the hearth was exactly that, sitting around the fire, sitting around the fireplace, the place where you're, where you're eating and gathering. And so that becomes the center of the family. So the fireplace becomes a symbol for the center of the family. What the family gathers around, the thing that calls the family together, it's something like the spirit of kinship, of belonging. It's the unifying center to which the family identifies. And Hestia, of course, is, is the goddess that represents this. Women keep and teach traditions. They organize gatherings, celebrations. They keep the family together. You know, that's certainly the case in my family. I don't know how much, I don't know how much of the men in your family are intimately involved with planning holiday celebrations and cooking the Thanksgiving dinner, but in my family, it's generally the women that do that, and we're all very grateful for that, right? They keep the family together. They preserve traditions, you know? Christmas holidays and Thanksgiving holidays and what, what, what do we cook for New Year's and all, those, all these sorts of things. The women are preservers of those traditions. And there's a little bit of overlap from the feminine to the masculine there because ancestral wisdom, wisdom and tradition is something that generally falls under the purview of the conscious principle and the great father God. But in Hestia, we see that here still in the goddess. It's almost like a a carryover from a time before the separation of the Ouroboros, when, when God and divinity was seen of as strictly feminine. The last thing that, um, that uh, I said there in that first quote is that the hearth was also a sacrificial altar. So you can see if you're cooking over the fire, you might also be making burnt offerings. Um, and that's going to happen right on the fire. You know, the smoke that leaves the fire goes up to heaven. And this is how ancient people saw their prayers and offerings traveling from earth to heaven. They were transformed from something physical, like, like the body of an animal, into something spiritual, like the smoke that wisps around and, and, and goes up into the heavens. That's something like your breath, you know, something that we, that we associate with the soul and the force of life. Smoke is like that. It's this numinous, ethereal thing. So there's this connection to sacrifice. And so I think what that represents is that what holds the family together is sacred. It's associated with sacrifice and the gods. So the Hestian woman is one who sacrifices for family cohesion. She sacrifices her time, her youth, her energies, 
her individuality and freedom to a certain extent, right? As a, as a mother and, and, you know, caregiver of children. I, I'll tell you a story that comes to mind when we're talking about sacrifices that my, you know, I told you on this podcast before that my family's not, doesn't, you know, doesn't have a, a lot of money. You know, we're not a, not a super wealthy family. And so we grew up um, with limited means. And I remember, I didn't know this as a kid, but as an adult, that my mom used to like, at dinner time, she would kind of hang around, uh, not at the table, but kind of in the kitchen, and she like you know, bring you you know bring you seconds if you were still hungry or like you know, fill, top off your glass or something, almost like a waitress, but but not you know. She didn't sit at the table with us though, at least not a lot, and I found out later that the reason for that was that she wanted to make sure that all of her kids and her husband had enough to eat. She didn't want to sit down and make a plate. Because it may be that the food ran out before we were full. And if that happened, my mother would not eat. That's the kind of sacrifice I'm talking about. The kind of sacrifice that keeps a family together. The kind of sacrifice that, be, that becomes invisible. And people don't always appreciate I didn't, certainly, until I was an adult and realized that's what was going on. Many, many times, my mom ate scraps off of our plates. Because there was nothing left for her to make her own. Shout out to mom. Okay. Edinger says, she signifies the sacredness of being centered, rooted, and contained in a collective group and in a particular region, a local soil. The geographical place that nurtures individuals, especially in their first years, tends to remain numinous throughout their lives. This can be seen as a source of patriotism and the nostalgia always attaching to home. So you can see there is something spiritual about home and the hearth, and this is what Hestia represents. When we think about the house we grew up in, the neighborhood we grew up in, the old days, the old stomping grounds, that sort of thing, that nostalgia and power, that memory and emotion-laden... Um, well... <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what word to use here, but it's certainly memory and emotion laden nostalgia, you know, that we attach to home. This is this is something that's that's represented by Hestia. And I don't know if you have like grandma, maybe grandma's a good example. Um, and she just embodies this idea of home. Even when you go to grandma's house, that it's not your home. It's like she's making sure you have something to eat when you get there. She's she's always proud of you, smiling and pinching your cheek, and just everything you do makes her proud. You know, she just it fills you up with this feeling of being, you know, welcome and at home and part of the group and belonging. You know, and that's it. A tremendous power that women have that the feminine has. And Edinger says, he gives us this interesting example. He says, on a building in Connecticut, a plaque reads, for God, for country, and for Yale. This is an inscription to Hestia in her different manifestations, her different hearths at which one has to serve. Right? So God, country, and Yale at the university, these are all, these are all instances of Hestia. They're, they're collective identities that people can belong to. So Hestian woman is she who unifies and provides a common identity to family, community, 
country and even species. And that brings me to Demeter. So this next section will focus on Demeter. It goes like this. A myth and a cult associated with her grew into the Eleusinian mysteries. So the goddess Demeter and the story surrounding her was the origin of the Eleusinian mysteries. Now, that's neither here nor there exactly, but it's really cool. We did an episode or two on the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, I encourage you to maybe go back and watch and listen to those episodes. They were interesting. Um, the Eleusinian mysteries taught, well, <laughs> mysteries, first of all, are religious stories, rituals, and behaviors that are that are kept secret from from people that aren't initiated. It's like there are religions that are open to everyone, and then there are private, by invitation only religions that have secret knowledge that not everybody is is equipped to have. And so, if you're lucky enough to be an an initiate, then you can learn what you need to learn to to be able to participate in these deeper religious rituals. And they were called mysteries. Even Christianity was considered by the ancients to be a mystery religion. And there's, there's some serious overlap between the Eleusinian mysteries and Christianity. But the Eleusinian mysteries are believed to have involved psychedelic use, um, drug use. And it's about learning how to die before you actually die. It's about having an ego death and learning the mysteries of death and rebirth. So you can see how the Jesus story gets mixed into that death and resurrection. All right, back to Demeter. Edinger says, Demeter was the earth mother, the embodiment of agriculture. She is the embodiment of the nourishing mother, an archetypal image well known to the psychotherapist. The nourishing mother is a double image. It implies a mother giving nourishment and an infant receiving it. It is easy for that dynamic to shift so that the nourishing mother becomes a devouring mother. The process of being fed, shifting from the infant to the mother. Any woman who has a compulsive need to nourish turns into a devouring mother. If she insists on feeding and caretaking, whether it is needed or not, the offspring remains infantile and its potential for growth is injured. The mother who must herself be fed by her children's dependence on her devours them. Man, the hair standing up my arms. Um, so this is the Oedipal mother. This is the myth of, of Oedipus that you probably know of. The idea that, that the mother can devour her child. And so failure to launch comes to mind. You know, you've got somebody who lives at home far longer than they should, and their mother takes care of them far and does more for them far longer than they should. And as a result, they never mature. They never learn to do things on their own. They never they never learn how to talk to women or or you know uh, do the things they need to do because their mother's doing too much for them. This is what comes to mind, and I think it's interesting because. Edinger notes that Demeter is a double image. And when we first started this episode, we talked about the Ouroboros and the separation that happens where you have these bivalent um, images that, that, that appear where one god or goddess becomes two and it's a, there's a good version and a bad version. That's what is meant by double image because you have a nourishing mother 
who does exactly what a mother should do. It provides nourishment and comfort and care to an infant who cannot do it themselves, who needs it, who's dependent on you for that. But then if you continue to do that beyond when it's appropriate, then the nourishing mother doing exactly what she was doing that was great before becomes the devouring mother. She's bivalent, right? It's the same mother, but she's both good and evil, depending on the circumstances. So I think we all probably know a person or two like this who's the victim of a devouring mother. And so that's, a, that's something that women have to fight against, to recognize that there's a point in time when their instincts to, to, to be nourishing and to, to care and to um, um, protect begins to actually have the opposite effect. That brings me to our next section, which I'm going to call Artemis. Artemis is an interesting one. Edinger says Artemis was associated with the moon and was the sister of Apollo, the sun. She was the goddess of the forest and the hunt, an archeress who carried a silver bow. She was virginal and was the goddess who watched over childbirth, but she was cold, chaste, and quick to be offended by men. She was the lady of beasts, valuing wild nature, um, more human feelings and uh, excuse me, I'll start again. She was the lady of beasts, valuing wild nature uh, more than human feelings and relationships. Okay, so this is this is uh, Artemis in a nutshell. So just starting at the beginning, we we know we learn that Artemis is associated with a moon because she's the sister of Apollo who's associated with the sun. Okay, so we have Artemis and Apollo, the sun and the moon. And you can see those also as images, as as Ouroboric images, right? You have opposites, the sun and the moon, opposites, the man and the woman, opposites, the brother and the sister. And together they represent some wholeness, but they've been split down the middle. They've been they, they, you know, they're bivalent now. Um the moon is an interesting association, and you kind of expect to see the moon associated with femininity in women, well, because of menstruation, right? I mean, you see this all the way back to the Stone Age and beyond, where you have images like um, images of the cow, for instance, horns, and um, various types of images that are associated with the moon, like the crescent moon, which looks awful lot like the, the horns on the top of a, of a bull. Of a, a bull's head, let's say, um, but also the cycles, 28-day cycles of the, of the the lunar cycles correspond to the menstruation cycle. So you have, you have very close biological ties that women have to the earth and the cycles of the earth. And very often and very early in human history, we recognize that and we start to see those things getting tied into the image of the, of the great mother goddess. And that's what we see with Artemis, connections to the earth. Um, she was the goddess of the forest and the hunt, and she was an archeress, just like Apollo. Um, you know, she, but she's connected with things that you might consider masculine, right? Going out, adventuring in the forest, not, not something you're likely to see Stone Age women doing as much as men. Hunting, the same thing. Hunting parties, very often they're the men. Um, and you could say that's because they're, they're stronger and faster and so forth, um, but in truth, it's because they're, they're uh, expendable. Women are at home taking care of the children, having children. If either of those things stop, the species is dead, right? Who can we spare to go out there and look for food? Not them. 
right? The men were going out there to hunt because we were expendable in a way women are not. Then he says that she's virginal, so she's, she's you know, the Virgin Mary type of thing that, that, that's associated with Artemis. She's always considered to be a perpetual virgin, and she watched over childbirth. And it's interesting because we talked about Hermes being the god of boundaries, but also being the one that um, transcends boundaries. And we see, see something similar with Artemis. She's the virgin, but she also seems to transcend that because she's the goddess of childbirth. And any woman who's giving birth is not a virgin, if you know what I mean. She's also cold, chaste, and quick to be offended by men. And I don't know what that sounds like to you, but... It brings up, I mean, the word feminist immediately comes to mind with the quickly being offended by men um, bit, but also the tomboy um, comes to mind. The tomboy, the feminist, the animus principle in women, actually. So we talked about the anima being the feminine side of a man that we kind of bury down in our, our unconscious and we try not to identify with for various reasons. Uh, women have the same had the same thing going on with them. The the version, the f kind of masculine version of the anima is the animus, and that's something that is the masculine spirit in the woman that do doesn't come to fruition. It gets buried down in the unconscious because the woman wants to be a woman. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to identify with the with the masculine qualities that she has, and um, and it's something like, and I guess the feminist comes to mind again. It's something like. All the man I need, I have within. I already, I already am all the man I need. So I'm, I'm an independent woman. I don't need a man. I'm everything a man is and better. That kind of an attitude. She was the lady of the beasts, valuing wild nature more than human feelings and relationships. See, that's also a masculine tendency. Um, Jordan Peterson usually sums it up this way by saying that women are generally more interested in people and men more interested in things. And he says that uh, responding to career choices. If you look at statistics, you see women generally prefer jobs where they're working with people and men generally prefer jobs where they're working with things, computers, you know, construction, um, you know, plumbing and carpentry and all that sort of stuff. And here you have Artemis, who values beasts and hunting more than she does humans and relationships. Not, not a characteristically feminine thing, a characteristically masculine thing. And so what Artemis is, is the woman who's the tomboy, the woman like the man. She's out there hunting. She's out there, um, you know, uh, doing what men do, right? Something like that. She's that unconscious masculine principle within, within women, the animus. And Edinger says, another side of Artemis's nature is shown to her, to her relationship with Orion. Apollo was jealous of Artis, Artemis's love for Orion. When Orion was swimming far out in the ocean one day, Apollo said to Artemis, Can you hit that speck in the ocean with your bow? She aimed with great care and hit it with her arrow. And the speck was Orion. See, this pictures how relationships can be destroyed in the Artemis woman through the jealousy of the spiritual animus. It is as if the woman already has a partner within her own psyche, which, has, which wants no competitors. 
See, so in the story where Artemis falls in love with Orion and Apollo, which is sort of Artemis's, um, you know, it's, it's her brother, but it's sort of her masculine half, right? It tricks her in a sense, getting 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 into her um, competitive, uh, under her competitive skin, which is also something more more associated with masculinity than femininity, right? He plays on that and gets her to kill her own lover. Terrible, right? Terrible. And that story is supposed to tell you how relationships can be destroyed um, in the Artemis woman through jealousy of the spiritual animus. Jealousy of the masculine part of herself that she doesn't get to be. You know, she's a woman. She doesn't get to embody the man, but she has that masculinity within her. And that is something that Freud called, he called penis envy. And that's something that's been ridiculed in all sorts of legitimate ways, but something like penis envy, that's what I see here. I think there might be a connection, you know, for lack of being controversial, or for, for uh, um, you know, not wanting to be controversial, I guess I, I, I'm trying to say. There's something that might be at play here with the, with the trans... Um, the transgender conversation that we're having today from a psychological perspective. If a woman has these masculine characteristics, comes to identify with them, and wants to be them so bad but can't, you know, she, she's not able to successfully integrate that into her, that, that masculine bit into herself. And instead of doing the psychological work that's necessary to do that, you know, maybe we're, today we're just having surgery or something, and I just don't know long-term, from a long-term psychological health, what the consequences are going to be of that. Sounds, seems like a shortcut, um, something that Jung said many times is to um, be wary of unearned wisdom, and I think that plays here. All right, lastly on Artemis. The Artemis woman tends to be self-sufficient, Right, uh, uh, Beyonce comes to mind. Um, <laughs> Artemis woman tends to be self-sufficient and not amenable to personal intimacy. As an inner experience, the Artemis principle appears as an attitude that is coldly factual and impersonal, aloof and indifferent. It will be experienced as cruel because it is indifferent to personal human feelings and harsh towards weakness. The Artemis woman is devoid of sentimentality. She is helpful to strength, and so is growth promoting to those for whom growth is possible. All right, so somebody who criticizes weakness, right? Somebody who sees all the virtues of masculinity within them, strength being paramount to that, looks at weakness in others and, and is critical of it, right? Because Artemis identifies with that strength within herself, that masculine courage and strength within herself, so she's going to be the first one to call it out, um, you know, from, from a woman or a man, really. She's the judge, right? Woman as the judge or the measure of a man. Or even of the masculine within women. Artemis is the one that says, are you man enough? Something like that. That brings me to the other side of the spectrum. This next section is, Aphrodite. Edinger tells us, Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty. The three graces are associated with her, whose qualities are grace, charm, seductive desire, 
and the power of the pleasure principle. To scorn her can be disastrous. Aphrodite takes her vengeance against anyone who has rejected her by involving him in some questionable or even perverse erotic situation. So I don't know what comes to your mind here. What comes to my mind is women who use sex or sex appeal as manipulation, as punishment and reward, you know, who, who claim to be pregnant, let's say, when they're not, or gets pregnant to try to force a commitment from a man, those sorts of things, who uses their wiles and their charms to get what they want. Edinger says, Another hazard encountered by women in mythology was brought about by equating their beauty with Aphrodite's. This has the clear psychological meaning that beauty and its capacity to engender desire must not be identified with. To presume that it belongs to oneself is to identify with Aphrodite or to challenge her divine principality. Oh, buddy. All right, so Aphrodite in the myths was never kind to women who believed themselves to be the most beautiful women in the world, who challenged the beauty of Aphrodite, who claimed to be Aphrodite, that sort of a thing. And that, that personality, if we're thinking about that as a personality type, what comes to my mind is the, the figure of the queen bee or the, or the mean girl, you know, the popular girl, uh, the, the usually outwardly beautiful girl, um, but <laughs> critical and mean, you know, that sort of a person. And he says to presume that beauty belongs to, to uh, a beautiful woman, to presume that it belongs to you is to identify with Aphrodite. But So to say or to believe yourself to be supremely beautiful and to have an edge over everybody else as a result of that, to believe that, that, that you identify with that and that that's a crucial part of you, well, it's a huge risk, not least of which because you're going to out, outlive that, that youthful beauty probably at some point, but also because to say that I am beauty is to say that I am Aphrodite, and she don't like that. She doesn't like competition, right? And so you can see that spirit of competition between women um, on the basis of their beauty, on the basis of their ability to attract uh, a mate and to um, you know do all those biological things that we're, that we're designed to do. Um, so I think women who rely too heavily on their beauty to get by, to manipulate, find themselves tragically empty and desperate as their looks fade. Think about washed up models or actresses or beauty queens. I think about Kim Kardashian 20 years from now, that sort of a thing. Edinger says, a more appealing aspect of Aphrodite's power is revealed in the myth of Pygmalion. He was a sculptor who fell in love with his ivory statue of a woman and prayed to Aphrodite to bring the statue to life. And she granted him his prayer, indicating that Aphrodite is also a life-producing principle. At times, Aphrodite is conceived as the very source of life itself. So you can see the positive aspect there. It's like the negative aspect of Aphrodite, the vengeful, jealous part we've, we've seen. But what we also see is exactly the opposite end of the sexual spectrum. There is a generative, life-producing, and good quality 
to sexuality, birth and creation. And that force of birth and creation, that's something that, w- I, that Aphrodite is identified with as the very source of life itself. That is at once a divine spiritual reality and something that exists in every human woman and every female animal. You know, it's amazing. Edinger says, the symbolism of Aphrodite overlaps with that of the Holy Ghost. They share, for instance, the symbol of the dove. And as Jung has demonstrated, the spirituality conceiving power of the Holy Ghost. Right, so Aphrodite is the spirit that brings new life into being, that brings new things into being. Just like the Holy Ghost is the spirit that has that same generative power. And they're both seen as a dove. Aphrodite is, is associated with a dove and is seen as a dove or, or pictured with a dove in, myth, in um, mythology. And we see the same thing. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit comes down. How? As a dove, right? Isn't that interesting? Edinger says, The Aphrodite woman functions through the qualities of charm, appeal, and the ability and willingness to give pleasure and to convey flattering attention. Aphrodite can be seen internally as the ability to relate to the beautiful. Externally, it would encompass the willingness to connect. So you have to see both sides of the Aphrodite coin. You have to see her as a personality that, if you brought it under the wing of yourself as a woman, if you turned this Aphrodite function into a tool that you can use, that you have control over, you can be flirtatious when you need to. You can be charming when you need to. You can, you can have appropriate boundaries because you are the boss, right? Because you're in charge of that principle. Uh, rather than identifying with Aphrodite, assuming that you are this thing, this beauty, this thing that you put so much value in, and watch your life fall apart, right? Watch it fall apart as you lose, you know, slowly lose those charms, or as you fail to develop any other parts of your personality because you've depended on your beauty to get you by all this time. You know, Aphrodite is bivalent. There's a good and a bad aspect to that personality. And that brings us to Athena. Edinger tells us, Athena was born out of the forehead of Zeus without a mother. Like Hephaestus, She is a one-parent figure. In her case, this signifies a feminine content that is oriented toward the masculine and particularly helpful to it. She is the principle that brings about civilization. She appeared helmeted and was considered a warrior goddess, but in terms of strategy rather than violence. She was a bringer of practical knowledge and wisdom. She was a protector of heroes and brought wise counsel to them. All right, so Athena is the goddess of wisdom. That's the important thing to know. She's also born without a mother. She's only born from Zeus. She, she's Imagine any girl you've ever known raised only by her father. So she's going to be particularly masculine. She's going to be particularly sensitive to the masculine. That's the only example she's seen her whole life. A woman raised by a man only. You know, raised by one who reinforces masculinity, but probably fails to develop her femininity, right? That's what we're seeing in Athena. She's also the principle that brings about civilization. And I don't know what 
what that means to you, but to me it's something like the force that tames the wild instincts. See, femininity, the women are associated with femininity. That's associated with the unconscious. And our instincts are like that. They're unconscious forces. And until we can tame the wild forces in the world, we can't have civilization, right? We have to cut back the wild forest. We have to build the walls around the city. We have to protect it. That's how we create order out of chaos. The same thing has to be done with our wild instincts. We have to tame, tame those wild forces from within, and those are unconscious forces. Athena, right, the woman, she is unconscious, right? She is something like an insider that can help tame the wild instincts in human beings. So she's something like an intermediary, as far as I can tell, between masculinity and femininity. She bridges the gap between the conscious and the unconscious. And Edinger says, she has many parallels to the Jewish wisdom figure. Now, if you don't know who the Jewish wisdom figure is, I'll tell you that a, a Greek name is usually used, Sophia, which just means wisdom. But in Jewish mysticism, like in the Kabbalah, for instance, and Gnosticism and some of these ancient um, ancient Jewish traditions, there was a feminine force that was seen alongside God, the divine feminine, you might call it. And it's something that in Christianity has been kind of usurped by this idea of the Holy Spirit. But in ancient times, it was considered to be something like a goddess or the feminine aspect of Yahweh, of, of the feminine aspect of God, Sophia. And Edinger says that Athena parallels this Sophia figure, not least of which um, is the fact that she was Zeus's favorite child. Right? She was born only of Zeus. She was Zeus's favorite child. Edinger says that the parallel from the book of Proverbs describes wisdom as the first of God's creations, like the fav God's favorite. And the quote from uh, Proverbs goes like this, The Lord created me, the beginning of his works before all else that he made, right? So that's Sophia, wisdom. Edinger says, she, uh, linked images such as these of Athena and the biblical wisdom figure demonstrate how the same archetypal reality springs up in different cultures and reveals its essential similarity since it corresponds to a basic inner experience of mankind. So what, what he's pointing to here is you can see something like Athena in ancient Greece and Sophia in, in you know, the ancient uh, Hebrew culture. And you don't see a lot of connections necessarily between them, but you see the same symbols emerging. And it's because they're archetypal. It's because they exist in our psyche, in the psyche of human beings. It doesn't matter where you're from in time and space, what language you speak, what culture you have. We have these same forces and instincts and impulses within us. And we recognize them and we can explain them. And when we do, you can see similarities like that between Athena and Sophia. All right, he says, psychologically, the Athena woman is one who puts primary emphasis on intelligence, who is a companion and advisor to men, often without erotic involvement. So I don't know who comes to mind, but if you're a Harry Potter fan, Hermione Granger comes to mind, right? That kind of a thing. She's primarily, her, her primary emphasis is on intelligence and wisdom, 
She's a companion to men. That's Hermione Granger, right? But you wish you know women like that. You've met women like that in your life. He says, one generally finds a positive relation to the father and a questionable relation to the mother. She is particularly skilled at building bridges for the man between his mind and his feelings, right? Between the conscious and the unconscious. And I, again, it's just like, um, there are like all these stories about um, taking a child from one tribe or from one, or from one species or something and like having a child raised, like a human child raised in the fairy world. Or a, fairy, or a fairy child raised in the human world or something like that. There's something like that that comes to mind when I think of Athena because she's, she's a woman. She belongs to the unconscious. She's an insider from the unconscious as far as that's concerned. But she's predisposed towards men, towards consciousness. She's something like an, an, inner, an intermediary that helps the conscious to understand its own unconscious. It's really, really beautiful. He goes on, he says, Young identifies the feminine figure of wisdom, Sophia, as the highest manifestation of the anima, the inner spiritual guide. Right. So the, remember, the anima is the feminine part of, of the man, the unconscious part that we don't like to identify with or try not to identify with for various reasons. But if we can identify with it, that it becomes not only this intermediary between the unconscious and the conscious, but it, be, it becomes our guide to, to being able to understand ourselves fully. It's the force that guides the development of our conscious psyche, the insider, she who is of the chaos, and therefore can demystify the unconscious for the conscious mind. And lastly, Edinger tells us, Greek philosophers were lovers of Sophia, as the word philosophy indicates. Philosophy is theosophia, love of wisdom, right? And Athena was closely connected with her. And that brings me to my conclusion. I'll keep it short and sweet for you today. This one's for the ladies, all right? I'm going to open up that way. This one is for the ladies. To the, woman, to the women in the audience, I ask, do you recognize yourself in any of these divine personalities? Do you see them manifest in your past, in your own mother, in your friends? I certainly can't speak authoritatively on the experience of womanhood, but I do have a mother, a happy marriage, two daughters, and a twin sister. So I guess you could say, I have grounds to speculate. In my youngest daughter, I see the adventurous spirit of Artemis. She recognizes her own power, is not afraid to push, and takes no shit from anyone. In my wife and, and my mother, I recognize the influence of Hestia as they plan for holiday gatherings and wrestle to keep the united family spirit alive against all odds. As I reflect on the last decade from the moment my wife and I met to the present. I've seen her personality transform back and forth between various shades of Aphrodite, Demeter, Artemis, Athena, and Hera. From our puppy love beginnings to the birth of our children, she embodied Aphrodite. She was enchantment itself. In pregnancy, she was generative Demeter, 
and in helping me to adapt to my new fatherly role, she was Artemis and my best friend, Athena. Now, in our maturing family, I see her nobly stepping up as Hera, as matriarch of the family. She has replaced her own mother and mine, and as they did before her, she holds the family together as our beloved and sacred Hestia. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>